Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So uh, we are doing a newsy episode today. We've got Alexi back, but he is in Greece. Yes. And, yes. and so, uh, you know, we're having to sort of improvise some uh, podcast recording equipment this time. But I hope you'll bear with us just talking about current events because there's a lot going down. Um, Hard to keep up. Yep. Before we get to that, though, uh, just a quick reminder, as usual, that we're sponsored by the American Prospect magazine now. And so if you subscribe at the $10 a month tier on Patreon, you can get our free episodes as well as a free digital subscription to the website, plus a discounted print subscription if you wish. Um, $5 a month to get our bonus episodes. Otherwise, rate, review, send to your friends, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, let's let's talk. Uh, wh- Where to what's, start? What's been happening? Boring <laughs> news cycle since I, I go to Greece and everything falls apart. What the hell? Yeah, um, I I did briefly want to mention. So by the way, I saw I saw I just, since that's my first one back in a couple of weeks. I, I gotta say uh, I appreciated uh, David Dayan being nice to me, but he tried to take my job there for a second. He was uh, <laughs> he was suggesting I was no longer needed, and that hurt uh, my heart a little bit. So. I don't think David really would want to be recording like every week. He has uh, better things. Fine, fine, sure. He just wanted to show that he could do my job, but he has bigger and better things. I understand. Be a big talker, you know. Um, <laughs> well, I love you too, David Dan. Just so you know. Of course. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the f- the first thing I wanted to mention briefly was this this submarine accident uh, in in which a this this crazy billionaire Rush Stockton is his name, if I remember correctly. Um, he made this submarine that was uh, apparently made of dis- like discarded carbon fiber from airplane manufacturing uh, and some R- RV parts and a Logitech <laughs> game controller. <laughs> That's not funny, but it's funny. Um... It was it was genuinely tragic in that a bunch of people slickered a bunch of people into going down there with them on this like completely yeah. ridiculous, including a nineteen year old kid who was a son of a uh, billionaire, right? Who didn't actually want to go. Apparently, his aunt said, yeah, and uh, his... he did it for Father's Day uh, type. Uh, yeah, yeah. Saw saw some uh, a bunch of commentary from real professionals like uh, James Cameron. Apparently, this is like the very first deep sea submersible fatal fatal accident ever. Right, actually right. very safe. Apparently, if you if you're not totally stupid and libertarian about it. Yeah, the a real case of hubris. I mean, that you know, this is a thing. It's like it's an incredibly difficult engineering challenge to go down there, where you know the the pressures are just incredible. You know, uh, a thousand. Oh, spoiler! Spoiler alert! It imploded, and they got vaporized. Yeah. They they got squished. Um, but what you do is you just build the shit out of your submarine. You way 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 over engineer it, and then you test it really thoroughly. And and all these professional organizations. I mean, it's kind of a hobbyist community almost. You know, they do. There is a business of 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 people, a company owned by uh, the Valve CEO. Gabe Newell that does this sort of thing all the time, but you know, he just spent like $35 million and had it all certified and it's fine. You know, you just, just have to check all the boxes. 
Yeah, well, and so this was a capitalist enterprise, though, right? That this this guy that built this stupid thing, it was um, you know making people pay a quarter of a million bucks uh, a person to be on a, a five seater, right? This tiny little thing that has no room. What a miserable claustrophobic experience! I can't even, anyway, but like it worked. Apparently, he'd done it successfully for any number of times. But the whole point is, if you don't have a structurally sound, you know. Uh, material that it's going to like over time uh, slowly weaken and slowly allow for, you know, a structural failure. And so like, you know, the first time will be fine. The second time might be fine, but at some point it won't be fine. And that's why you don't do things like that. Yep. Very, very sad that the collateral damage, but. Well, but so hubris of billionaires, whether it's passenger or the capitalist in charge. Uh, but what are what are other lessons to draw from this? Do you think? I think I mean it's probably not a surprise that this got so much attention. Um, you know because it's very very weird. Yeah the the you have a very strange very you know a, a scary sort of compelling thing to talk about on the news and the guy is going to to investigate one of the great symbols of of like the hubris, you know, meeting its nemesis, uh, you know, and, and also like one of the great pop cultural phenomenons over the last century. I mean, it's been, you know, how many movies, including like one of the highest grossing of all time, you know, that was a worldwide phenomenon. Um, oh, yeah. did we mention that the whole point was to check out the wreckage of the Titanic? That's an important point. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. I maybe did forget to mention that, but yeah, so I see why people would pay so much attention to it, but on the other hand, you know, there was like a, a ship full of migrants in the Mediterranean that capsized, and like dozens of them drowned, I believe, and that's something that happened. They they estimate hundreds of people drowned. You yeah, know? that's just the bodies. So far, they've only recovered so many bodies, right? But yeah, and this is a thing that happens like regularly. Um, and nobody cares. We'll, we'll talk about Greece in, in a minute, but you know, that like th this is more or less the explicit policy of the European Union to make crossing the Mediterranean as difficult and dangerous as possible. And so people pack onto these like sh rickety ass ships that capsize in heavy seas and then a bunch of people drown. And then Europe's like, well, shouldn't be doing that. Un unfortunate. Yeah. Unfortunate. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, and, I've been, and just to stick on that a little bit, I, we talked about this, if you remember, years ago with Brad Evans about spectacle. And, and what I think, you know, this is a point we could come back to a little bit is, is that um, media is so pervasive in our lives. It's kind of like how we detox, uh, you know, it's either Netflix or, or, or enter entertaining uh, media consumption is, is a go-to for so many people. And like what gets covered and what people... Uh, vent about or have catharsis about uh, is not the, the kind of structural violence and the repeatable violence that is, um, you know, something that is sad, but we're desensitized to like the migrants drowning. But, um, but spectacle captures our attention because it's new, it's different. We've been kind of formed by capitalism to be, uh, you know, that get the dopamine hit, whether it's from the refresh on the social media or from, you know, some funny, weird news thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's like we can't process things that are uh, normal and repeatable and terrible uh, because there's too much of it. Um, but so we kind of uh, focus on the weird and, and spectacular. What do you, what do you think about, about how that kind of pervades for us? Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. I do think that the you know back in the day, I, I think it was a, the the media as a whole felt a little bit more responsible. Like there 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 was an obligation to cover like events sort of in proportion to their actual importance. Uh, you know, obviously like that, what, that wasn't how the media worked like in the 1960s or whatever, like really, but I feel like there, there were people felt like a little guilty about, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type stuff. And like, you sort of have to make the news consumers eat their vegetables a little bit and talk about, you know, monetary policy or something. But now I feel like, I mean, with how the, the media system has been eroded and replaced, as you say, by like, like these, these social media systems that just explicitly incentivize the most inflammatory possible content that, yeah, it's just like whatever makes the most interesting story, you know, or like hooks people's attention is just like blasted, you know, across the world, um, regardless of, you know, context or, 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 you know, actual relative importance or anything like that. It just doesn't, that doesn't enter into the equation at all, you know, and in, in as in as much as it ever did. It does translate to a weird thing where you get in these kind of silly back and forths between people on social media who are making fun of the billionaires, uh, which, you know, it is in part because they understand the, the violence that's happening to poor people all the time and that this was just kind of a lark that, that powerful rich people uh, don't have to do. So they did it to themselves, kind of like a Darwin Award type thing, right? Um, and then you have kind of uh, your, your typical liberal kind of response, uh, how dare you be so mean, there are people too, which is true. Um, but those same liberals are also ignoring migrants, right? Like that, so, so like... Uh, you, you do get this kind of um, emphasis, even from the liberals who are like, oh, every life counts when, you know, uh, when we're making fun of billionaires, uh, you do get this uh, same function, which is to distract from the daily violence and to, to not do anything other than, uh, you know, talk about the media headlines. Yeah. We'll get to our, you know, vegetables of the episode in a second. But I also do want to mention uh, in this context of pointless idiot yeah. spectacle, this this supposed potential cage match between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, which yeah. has, has been, you know, dominating the headlines again. I don't I'm not like a martial arts guy, but what I do know is that, well, uh, Elon Musk is quite a bit taller and heavier than Zuckerberg, he's also 51 as compared to Zuck's 39. And uh, he's a, a, a fat, out of shape dude who spends all his time <laughs> scrolling Twitter. Um, whereas Zuckerberg, apparently, I've been reading up on this, he actually does train. He's been training jujitsu for, for a number of years now. It's a weird guy. You know, and, when you're rich and powerful, you can do things like that. Yeah. And I. I Elon Musk is the master of b trying to back out of stuff, making like boastful claims and then not following through. He's been doing it his entire career in business and out of business. And so if he actually goes through with this, I would be very surprised. Right. Um, but if what there were. The beef or how, how did this even arise on the Twitters or something, right? Or on the social media? Elon, yeah, was talking shit on Twitter. You know, it was like, uh, it was like, oh, we could do a cage match. Well, you know, and then there are a bunch of people egging him on and, you know, just went from there all of his like basically fascist followers were like oh daddy 
Daddy Musk. Uh, <laughs> but what's funny about this is, is well, a few things are funny about it. It's absurd uh, that these um, two billionaires, you know, um, want to beat each other up uh, for charity, apparently. Like, this is a perfect example of these are our saviors. You know, <laughs> they, they want to, uh, you know, put on a, a crappy cage match in order to, to help the world through entertainment and their philanthropy. But um, again, it's a kind of like catharsis at the absurdity of the world and the idea that like this, these hateable people, one of whom is apparently far more hated, right? Because you have people who would never root for Zuckerberg in any walk of life or any other scenario, uh, kind of excited about uh, the, the opportunity for him to, uh, you know, make Elon suffer. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's I, me. You know, that's yeah. I mean, I, I'm here for it, frankly. Uh, so you got to take the the wins where you can, I guess, right? Yeah, because even if he does back out, you know, it makes him look like a chicken. You know, yeah, which, that's true. Which, which he is, and if you've, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of like martial arts training to be able to like just kick the crap out of someone who is not, you know, just an ordinary schlub. Like if like you've ever seen someone who's like gotten in a, a bar brawl with like a wrestler or someone who boxes you know that like that it's a brutal experience but anyway um <laughs> so shall we, we started we started the episode making fun of the media for not covering important things and what do we do we we kick off with uh, the billionaires being idiots but yeah yeah, yeah. so that's 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 the sugar now but speak, there's a there's a good transition here because you know like they they uh, everyone on the right now uh, puffs up Musk as like some Tony Stark business genius, you know, hyper-masculine dude. Uh, oh, right. And they did that. And Putin, Putin yep. too, right? Yeah, yeah Putin was for a long time. You know, I remember like Ted Cruz talking about how, you know, he's like <clears throat> posting a, a advertising, a recruitment advertisement for the Russian military, which is all like hyper-macho and everything, being like, wow can't believe we have such an effeminate, you know, LGBT diverse, you know, woke military. The military's woke now because like they they you can get uh gay marriage or like transgender care, I think, or abortions. Um and yet, yeah, you Whereas look at look at Putin with his shirt off all the time. This is very masculine and he's on horses with his shirt off. He does judo also. He and Zuckerberg maybe, you know, maybe it could be a Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Putin uh cage mash all three of them yeah but so not only has this war in ukraine gone much worse than everyone thought it would for putin even people who didn't su support him we now had in the last couple of days uh, a sort of attempted coup it seemed like from the uh semi-private military company wagner uh which is run by um evgeny prigozhin Right. Um, so he's like a uh, warlord, you know, oligarch, uh, kind of like a, out of a Bond film or something like that. Just a, just a kind of nasty, torturing character who, who uh, is a head of a mercenary group in Russia. Right? Yeah. And a little bit of background here, I guess. Uh, so w Wagner has for, for decades now been, as you say, sort of like Blackwater, yeah, Blackwater, except like way, way more influential at the top, which is saying a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, so doing all sorts of like wet work for Putin all around the world. It involved in the war in Chechnya. 
Um, and they have been uh, centrally involved in the Ukraine war, some of in some of the hardest fighting. Um, they, they were on the front lines at, at Bakhmut, which is, you know, the big battle that happened like all this winter, basically, in which Russia expended a, just a tremendous number of, uh, casualties to take the objectively kind of pointless little city, uh, that's now been completely ruined. Um, Wagner got to, they, they conscripted a bunch of people out of the, prisons in Russia and basically sent them on human wave attacks, which is why the casualties were so terrible or big part of the reason. Um, but during that battle, uh, Prigozhin, he accused the Russian Ministry of Defense of uh, denying like ammunition and equipment supplies to his troops. And a couple of days ago, accused the um someone in the Russian military of actually shelling his troops, like hitting them with artillery. Uh, and in the last, what, starting on the 24th, I believe, so a couple of days ago, uh, announced he was going to march on the capital. And so if you look at a map of Ukraine, so he left eastern Ukraine and started going north toward uh, north and slightly east towards Moscow and uh, occupied the town of Rostov. Uh, shot down like a couple of helicopters and a reconnaissance drone, apparently. Which is a, a big deal. I mean, all those things are a big deal, but like it didn't meet resistance. And that was a major, I don't, I don't know, the equivalence for us would be like, I don't know, Dallas or San Diego or something, right? Like a major uh, city. Yeah. And um, so uh, initially reports were like, okay, this is weird and silly. But then it was like, oh, he's not facing any resistance from the Russian military. <laughs> so yeah. that was that, it. Got stranger and stranger, right? Yeah, and they what they did do is they tore up a bunch of roads and and bridges on the outskirts of Moscow. And so when it, when he got close to Moscow, suddenly it was announced that, that he had made a deal to go back to Ukraine um, and return to the war. And, you know, it, it made some uh, bargain. Apparent, yeah, with with the that was negotiated with um, the, the president of Belarus. Um, it was a Putin guy. Yeah. Alexander Lukashenko. Yeah. Who is a Putin guy. And now just just as we we're getting ready to record this, it turns out that uh, Wagner is apparently going to be heading back to Belarus and is not going to obey an order to like disband the group. Um, and so who who's we'll to see. say? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it, it was uh, brought up by a number of academics. Uh, you know, Putin should have read his Machiavelli, Book 12 of the Prince. Very clear. You do not want to rely on mercenaries. You just, you know, this is the, they are, they are not trustworthy. And uh, especially when war comes, uh, they will not act in the same interests uh, as, as your kind of normal conscripts for the, for the regular army. So, yeah, Putin is not, not studying his art of war, as it were. No. No. And, and yeah, as we say, it's, it's not, um, at all clear what's going to happen, but I think we can conclude that the, the Putin regime is, is pretty unstable and has been rendered dramatically less stable by this war. Um, yeah. that's the other thing that the Prigozhin guy has been doing is criticizing the, the invasion. 
you know, from from his point of view, and I think from the point of view of most of the Russian like troops, it was a total disaster. <laughs> you know, it, it's not helping, you know, him or the, you know, Russian state as a whole, like they're, they're getting their nose bloodied real bad. Well, and to, to be clear to those who uh, misunderstand the kind of, uh, I don't know, not glee, but kind of um, interest in, in this development. It's not because this mercenary warlord is a good guy or that he cares about Ukrainians. In fact, as you suggested, he wants to kill the Ukrainians better. Like that's the whole point is he is critiquing uh, this foray. And, and, and maybe there are criticisms about whether Putin should have done this at all. But like, if you're going to do it, do it successfully. And so, as you say, like the main takeaway is that this almost civil war that happened perhaps is just an indication of uh, Putin weakening uh, with other elites and weakening with his reputation with the people. Uh, and that could lead to other dangerous things. Like, so no one's predicting, no one's been good at predicting anything, uh, except that I think now in retrospect, whether it was always an imperialist, terrible thing from a normative perspective, but strategically, uh, politically, just the stupidest thing Putin could have done, uh, at least how he did it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, the one of the reasons why the, the you know, Wagner has been um, so, like, relatively speaking, effective compared to the ordinary Russian troops is that, you know, we, we've the invasion has revealed that, you know, the, the Russian um, ordinary regular forces were totally corroded by years of just like epic corruption of people stealing everything that wasn't nailed down, you know, and selling it on the black market, you know, sort of um, the Potemkin uh, army encampments that were shown to elites, you know, and the, like with this type of highly personalist dictatorship, you just can't create the sort of like highly professional and sophisticated, um, you know, military force because you don't have the, you know, a uh, level of accountability and state institutions that are required to set that up. And so you turn to the private mercenaries, but then those guys turn on you whenever you screw up because you become a megalomaniac, you know, right. and it threatens there and it threatens their, you know, potential for flourishing with what they want for themselves. And uh, look, this is going back to Plato. Uh, every regime has a spirit or a, a kind of, um, form and, and that spirit of an autocracy an authoritarian uh, autocracy or and a kleptocracy you know is to inspire people that are looking out for themselves and wanting to get rich themselves and are not particularly loyal uh, because that's just not the the spirit that's been kind of inculcated even though the attempts at nationalism are an attempt to try to kind of identify everyone with the the iron fist ruler uh, that's, of course, what like authoritarian fascistic regimes try to do, right? They try to try to make you feel like like even Trump tries to do, right? That that uh, when you see Trump, you also are a winner and not a loser because he's a winner, right? And that's where the masculinity thing, I think, comes in, right? And the critiques, this is where we, we tie into critiques of, um, you know, you know, the misogyny critiques of the queer community, critiques of, of trans people this is connected to those kind of assholes because uh, if you want to be a winner and you want to be a real 
tough guy. You want to be a man and dominate and succeed, right? Um, then you have to be the kind of person who is against weakness, which is, uh, you know, aligned with femininity and, and, and kind of abnormal, uh, you know, queerness. And, and so, so there is a symbiotic relationship, I think, between the ideology um, that allows these kind of uh, would-be dictators or authoritarians to, to rule. Um, but they have to say, the thing is, they have to show that they're winners in some way, even if it's a way that we hate. Uh, and if you can't even be that tough guy, if you're losing a war, which is like what the epitome of the tough guy showdown against what was supposed to be an easy opponent, well, that kind of, you know, loosens the legitimacy of your, you know, I am dominant kind of uh, thing, right? Yeah, I think you could you could put a read on this situation as just like the down the the problems with like this kind of neurotic, you know, machismo where it's like you're constantly having to like beat your chest and, you, you know, dominate others to prove to others and yourself that you really are the tough guy who wins. Like, yeah, it's like if right. you're if Putin was a little more secure in himself and his own identity, maybe he wouldn't have needed to, to like make this demonstration. Well, uh, that's why we see all those idiot uh, Republicans who were like, my body can take the virus, get dying of COVID. And this submarine thing is another, like I'm invincible, invincible against the elements. I'll throw together this janky thing and survive under underwater thousands of meters below this, you know, and this cage match is another perfect. I think that's why it's so funny. It's a perfect opportunity to show the facade of their like dominance. You know, these are, wow, they're, they're the super billionaires. They must be the most powerful people in the world. And then you see these flabby idiots, you know, like <laughs> yeah. in reality, it, it kind of, it, it's so enticing to just show the world how uh, there's no there there, right? Yeah. One, uh, to, to wrap up on this dis, uh, part of the, the discussion we should mention in brief that that there is a another counteroffensive going in Ukraine right now um, that is going pretty slowly it seems um, reading some reporting in the Financial Times and the New York Times um, would basically just like Russia uh, put up tons and tons of fortifications especially mines that just mined the shit out of everything and so the, the vehicles are are really struggling to make any progress and the Ukraine doesn't have it's like air defense that can go that far into uh you know the the Russian occupied territory and so, so the they are getting hit by um the Russian air force too uh and they say it's a, it's just going to be a slog you know kind of world war 1 style trench warfare to some degree except with drones and and uh whatnot but, but the idea is, if it were successful, this would push Russia back enough to, to a place where it would be a real uh, devastating loss for, for Russia to lose uh, the ground they've gained. And, and like, what, what would be like, what, why is this so such a significant thing, even though it seems like uh, a long haul and, and a, you know, perhaps deadly slow process? What, what, what would be benefited uh, by that success if it happened over time? Well, you know, I don't, it's hard to say what Ukraine's like sort of tactical objective is, you know, because they seem to be kind of like going around looking for weak points. Um, I, I think, you know, what they want to do uh, in the um, sort of medium term is to like push down to south the southeastern border and like cut off, uh, you know, the, the like hit towards like Mariupol 
that was, you know, conquered by Russian troops. And so basically like cutting off the Russian uh, access to Crimea, um, which is, you know, a peninsula that's connected on the Ukrainian side. Um, I, I think, though, mainly that there it's a political objective. I think that um, Zelensky like- is he's thinking like like General Grant in 1864. It was like you, you got to show progress or you're going to like you're going to lose international support. Um, you know, the Europeans are going to get sick and tired of this and push Ukraine to like, you know, make some concessions. Um, and you know, the, the Americans might get bored. And I think also at the back of their mind, they're very worried about Trump getting reelected in 2024. And That's true. Yeah. he's already signaling that he would try to cut off aid to the Ukrainian uh, military. And so they, you know, want to make as much progress as they can before that, you know, may or may not happen. Yeah. Um, and and you have the morale that's positive that you want to maintain or improve uh, on the Ukrainian side, and you want to you know demoralize right the Russians and the yeah. people and, and and so forth. Uh, what do you what do you make of uh, leftists who you know focus on the Nazis that are involved on in the Ukrainian side and who think that like funding or shipping arms or supporting um, Ukrainian side in this fight is <clears throat> prolonging, you know, the conflict in a way, like, cause you suggested there that there could be some kind of concession or political deal or something. Right. Um, so for an anti-war left, what, what is the argument against the idea that the U S should not be supporting um, prolonging the conflict and should be pushing to just like concede a bunch of land or territory to Russia to end the violence or something like that. I think that there are a lot of people who uh, understandably are highly suspicious of American militarism and are not very familiar with the like history here and uh, are just sort of rooting around for some kind of reason why it, everything can be America's fault again, you know, I think it's just like a very, it's a different situation. And I think that cutting off, you know, number one, like there's no prospect of a negotiated settlement on the table. Neither side wants to negotiate. They can still win on the battlefield. Number two, there have been, uh, the, in the Minsk settlements, uh, that were, you know, during the Donbass war from 2014 to, uh, 2022 until, you know, this full blown invasion, they made a, bunch of they they had a bunch of negotiations and settlements uh Russia violated all of them like almost immediately Ukraine did too but it, it was it was like typically the Russia was more aggressive um and so you know i think people they they're reaching out for this sort of phantom possibility that that Putin could like come to his senses and uh you know agree to like stop the bleeding but i don't see any prospect of that happening and if Ukraine did lose on the battlefield and Russia did conquer like a great big chunk or the entire country, perhaps that wouldn't be the end of the war. You'd have an insurgency instead. That's right. Exactly um, right. Yeah. So I, I think the most plausible way to end the the violence as quickly as possible is for Ukraine to win. That's you right. Yeah. That's what's going to push Putin to the negotiating table to actually uh, you know, do do a a deal, do some kind of negotiated settlement that isn't just breathing space for him to rearm and start the invasion over again. Where it's just too painful for Russia to continue their war effort, basically their their aggression for for them to 
this aggression must not stand. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that's right. I think like the realist view is, um, you know, to hope that enough goes wrong for Putin or for for the Russian effort that they don't do it anymore. <laughs> like that's uh, that's much a, a much better prospect than uh, you know genocide or uh you know a long insurgency um and um nothing is going to be clean and it's it's all terrible and it's not the only violence in the world but um i think the left has to learn a little bit of a lesson that like as we do have the benefit of not being like liberals where we have very strong clear principles like we don't need to to means test you know to figure out our moral compass you know what i mean like, like yeah. people deserve right food shelter like it's very so that, that is a benefit of the left but like when it comes to complicated political military situations that doesn't mean there's an easy stance about what to do or, or what something happening means and so like saying that you're against violence and against war what does that actually look like? It's it's not so simple um, as some would have it, right? Yeah. And I'd make one, another comment. You know, you hear a lot of people, Cornell West's platform, for instance, says we need to disband NATO. Um, that is another thing I think people haven't thought through the implications of that. What would happen, you know, you look at neutral countries like Switzerland you, that used to be neutral. Um, th they're not like peaceful in, ter in military terms like, in their within their own borders what they are is armed to the teeth you know they spend a ton of money on defense because they don't have a lot of allies and if we get rid of nato what would happen is that it would be replaced by a european uh led nato thing that would that would be uh result in massively increased military spending inside of europe um everyone you know i mean number one like it's not clear how you could actually do that. You know, like this is a treaty. Like we signed the, all these agreements. You can't just tear it up. And, and like the, the Europe would, if you're just unilaterally say, we're not in this anymore. Uh, the Europe would never trust America again. Uh, I think never, we're forgetting that it's, it's a multipolar world, right? Yeah. Like it's not, uh, th that's why people seemingly, some of them didn't realize that here the imperialist was Putin and you have, uh, you know, consequences for the US just like withdrawing from like if you disbanded NATO that is I think a kind of proxy for a heavily US influenced or controlled outfit right um, and granted that is you know far away from our borders or whatever but I think we have to stop thinking about that right where we need a more in a certain sense globally united world that isn't united by capital being global but by like trying to figure out ways to uh, reduce violence and think about uh you know refugees as a global issue not a domestic issue right or even a european issue like it's it's we, we don't want to do the 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 kind of um you know pat buchanan thing and just like everyone to their camps you know which we'll let's just have like uh, everyone focus on their own nation we want to have indeed an understanding of our interconnectedness but not that's a global capitalist run uh, perspective one that's like solidaristic and understanding about uh, human beings are equal and like, all those good things so like what does that then entail right yeah um, yeah yeah i think you look at the history of how poland got into nato 
you know, they they threatened they were going to develop a nuclear program, nuclear weapons program. And then they intervened in the 1996 election. They started meeting with Republicans who were attacking Bill Clinton for going slow on this. And then Clinton made a deal with Boris Yeltsin where Yeltsin agreed such that the announcement for the uh, NATO expansion was timed uh, after the Russian presidential election. So Yeltsin didn't get hit before it, but before the American presidential election, so Clinton could take credit for it. I think it, without that NATO guarantee, Poland would go straight for nuclear weapons. I think that's that's unquestionable. You know, it would just be massive proliferation um, in addition to, you know, just like remilitarization across uh, the whole European continent. That's probably good enough for um, Ukraine. I think so. Should we talk Greece? We could talk Greece. Since we're talking authoritarians, we could do a quick, uh, quick discussion of, of Modi, you know, the Indian prime minister uh, being uh, <laughs> massaged with open arms or whatever. I don't know, but the Biden administration just uh, throwing out the red carpet and really um, for geopolitical reasons, obviously, but like really yep. embracing Someone who uh, we should say is not so different from the Orbans and the other kind of right wingers, especially you know the religious ones. Um, so yeah, what, what what do you think of, of this special uh, love fest with uh, Modi? How's that for sending the right signal to the world about our values? <laughs> yeah, I mean, presumably this is just about China, right? There, that's that they. Washington thinks China is the new geopolitical adversary and it's going to be so for the foreseeable future. And so you need to suck up to everybody who is potentially anti-China, whether it's, um, you know, India or Vietnam or the Philippines, potentially like Japan, especially. Um, and I, I don't know what, like it, it's sort of de- like Liza Featherstone, you sent this piece over, has a has a good piece, you know, running through Nodi's like trail of abuses involved in a pogrom in, in Gujarat in 2002. Um, and it's all horrible. You, I guess on the one hand, you, you can't really see what America could do about any of this stuff. You know, India is so big and it's it's getting like sort of heading towards middle income status. You know, like your ability to push them around is is limited and it might, you know, drive them into the arms of Russia. On the other hand, it's sort of like, what even is the point of trying to set up this like new, you know, it's like insofar as like China's new geopolitical adversary, um, you know, do we need to really try to like sort of set up a new like alliance block of, of friendly countries, uh, who, you know, will, do something like what what is the objective with india is it just maintaining good relations i guess but like are you're going to try to get them to sanction china or something like that it strikes me as underbaked the whole theory here yeah and apparently there's some you know india u.s economic initiatives that biden is um you know lauding and facilitating perhaps um but i mean you look either we we represent ourselves as um, defining our adversaries in part by where they diverge from liberal democratic values, or we don't do that. So you can't have it both. You can't say we're in Ukraine for democracy, right? Defending, yeah. you know, and then on the other hand, say, well, you know what? Let's let's take authoritarians when they can help us strategically. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it, 
So, yeah. I mean, it's one, I suppose it's one thing to be like, well, we can't talk, we can't do regime change in India, but it's another thing to have Modi over in the White House in a public meeting and just like lavish praise on him and talk about democratic traditions. And it's well, like, you just, thing. you sound like a lying hypocrite. I mean, you are a lying hypocrite. He knows what's going on there. <laughs> no, in fact, we're in favor of having diplomatic relations and like, making strategic initiatives and deals with uh, governments that we uh, have fundamental problems with, but you don't like pretend they're awesome. You don't, you <laughs> don't like that. That's no different. You're then no different from like Rod Dreher and the, the stupid Republicans celebrating Victor or- Orban. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it, it matters. Uh, like these words have to matter democracy and freedom and equality and tolerance. Uh, they can't just be convenience and, and, and use, you know, have shape shifting signifiers. So, um, okay. So, so with, with that, um, you know, dig at Biden and the Democrats, uh, I guess we, we should talk about Greece a little bit. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm here. I, uh, you know, I'm in the country that just held the elections and I can tell you, I was not surprised by the results. So why don't you talk about the results and I'll tell you why I was not surprised by them. Yeah. So, I mean, the the new democracy party, which is like a sort of, I don't know, right wing, center right, pretty, pretty far in the center right, I guess you would say Um, this. It's more conservative than like the Angela Merkel's party uh, formerly Angela Merkel's party in Germany. Um, I forget who's running it now. Uh, but yeah, they, they were elected in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, they, they defeated the government of Alexei Tsipras, uh, the, the Syriza party. And then they were just reelected in a, just a sweeping landslide victory. Um, and the, you know, they got 40% and I think Syriza, uh, got 19.5, something like that. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that was the second biggest, uh, portion. And then this, the center left party of Pasok. It's just been out of it for forever. So, yeah, they they're virtually disbanded in like 2012. But I guess they sort of come back to get I don't know a couple of percent. Um, but yeah, it's it, uh, I will they? Ha- I'm not actually sure about this. Will New Democracy need to create a coalition to be able to? Yeah, yeah. And so it's not actually. So I, I I've been thinking reports that say it's just this dominant win or. Bullshit. It's not going to be. I think they have like an eight MP majority, something like that. Uh, so it, it's not going to be. Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll get a coalition, but it's not going to be uh, super convenient for them. And in fact, uh, that's the danger because there are some, uh, you know, fascist parties that that made the cut. You know, that that got over the three percent. Um, and and the so Spartans party. So, yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, Mitsotakis, uh, who's the prime minister, is, um, you know, a kind of running on the economy kind of guy, you know, kind of like Mitt Romney type, if you will, um, who, who uh, you know, wants to be seen as the, the center right kind of reformer, good on the economy kind of um, politician, um, but who's also, you know, tough on immigration type type guy um sounds bad but then you have actual fascist parties <laughs> you have actual fascists like in greece you have an actual communist party the kke you have actual fascist parties you have right and so like the center left center right they really are uh center compared to those other fringe parties right mm-hmm. um, but but the fear i think is that like even though they got 40 percent 
will he stick to his kind of uh, messaging as a centrist or is he going to have to cave uh, because he doesn't need the voters for four more years? Is he going to have to cave, uh, you know, in the parliament to the more right wing forces? Yeah. Um, probably worth saying that there has been, you know, from, from the like nadir of like 2016 ish, there has been some growth in Greece, uh, relative to that, but like GDP is still dramatically below where it was before the financial crisis. Um, there's still a serious unemployment problem. Um, and, you know, Jan, you you send over this article by Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister that that I'll link to. That like a lot of this growth is pretty uh, extractive. I guess the word would be like there's a lot of foreign investment that's coming in. You know, to just like you know put up Airbnbs to like displace gr- Greeks out of their apartments or or like buy a privatized uh, state resources at a bargain basement prices. You know. The, the, I think it's fair to say the economy is significantly stronger. I mean, unemployment has gone down quite a bit compared to where it was, but it was at 27% uh, for yeah, a while. Brutal. Like Great Depression, bad. And they still got a long way to go to reach anything like full employment. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Wh- I, mean, I mean, some of those kind of trick uh, kind of incentives for foreign uh, direct investment, like you said, are extractive and don't really find their way into the the pockets of the people. Uh, some of them, like, for example, I, I'm here um, for the year on sabbatical on a digital nomad visa, right? Because I get paid in the States by the university that employs me and I'm going to spend that money here. And like, that is actually good for the Greek economy, right? Yeah. For, for the, the States to pay me and for me to spend it on the goods and services in Greece. That's... Foreign currency, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, on the whole, this 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 was never going to be a, a winning uh, approach long term for the Greek economy or the Greek people, um, but it does seem to be more stable for uh, at least the, the bourgeoisie in Greece and for you know um, the markets are more stable and and um, the, the the political uncertainty that uh, went along with the economic uncertainty is not uh, what it was. So you know, plus you've had a dramatic flight uh, of people that, that emigrated that left the country. So, uh, yeah, it's just a different scenario. Um, I actually ran into, um, I ran into a guy who went to the army and is friends with, um, um, a public relations guy for a Syriza from back in the day, uh, when the whole thing went down with cheap Ross and Verofakis. Uh, and, and, you know, he said that, um, you know, Verofakis is brilliant, but he, uh, had he thought a little less kind of bullheadedly about like, his approach being the only approach, uh, there could have been another way if, if we'd gone to get support from Italy, Spain, uh, Ireland, and not had this kind of utopia of this, uh, you know, brand new currency, but instead like, you know, use the US dollar, right, instead of the euro. Uh, he, he was, it was interesting. He, he had um, a lot to say about how Verofakis was, was great in many ways, but it's too kind of um, single-minded in his approach and, and you know, could have been a different path, but we are where we are and, and where we are involves uh, a center-right party that is uh, in part responsible for, you know, uh, lining up with the EU uh, against 
you know, those migrants that are drowning and against, uh, you know, people fleeing these war zones or fleeing, you know, climate change uh, problems. And, uh, and so it looks like more neoliberalism uh, plus nationalism and, and walls, right? It's, it's a familiar thing. You mentioned you weren't surprised by the result. So, so what, like, what's the mood on the street? Like the, the, the mood is, so what people might not know is that like, there was a big scandal uh, in the Mitsotakis regime about spying. Apparently he was, uh, I don't know if he was cleared, but like he apparently could have plausible deniability, but like there was um, spyware tapping on political opponents and <laughs> just like heads rolled, people fell on swords, the whole deal. That didn't seem to matter. This this latest disaster with the, the drowning uh, migrants happened very close to the election. That didn't matter. Um, but the reason I kind of had a, had a feeling it wouldn't is uh, the, the number one sentiment is, is um, it's not apathy as much as it is uh, skepticism that their votes will do anything, that it will matter at all. So you had a massive drop. So even though, um, you know, this round had 40% for uh, new democracy. I think they were 250,000 votes less than last last time, something like that. Uh, and, and there was a, a drop overall by, I don't know, 10%, something like that in the number of voters that came out. And this reminds me when we talked to David Broder about Italy, uh, how people could get the, the mistaken belief that the far right is ascendant and like it's popular when really there's just kind of uh, a, a certain history in, in, the, in terms of parliament, the parties involved, coupled with economic distress and people not believing in the system. And um, it's a kind of weak, and this is, you know, in some ways true of, of the American, right? Like it's a weak Republican party in many ways, but that doesn't mean they don't come to power and do terrible things. It just means that like the people aren't super happy about any of these idiots in power and don't feel like much will change if they go to the ballot booth. Um, yeah, so it, it, there was no real viable uh, alternative that, that seemed uh, like it would change anything. And, and as one of the Greeks I talked to said, um, what does it matter? You know, anything that gets done in Greece, you first have to, it, it's politics by telephone. I say, what do you mean? You, you gotta call up Fran France and Germany. You know, that's before, before Greek politicians can do anything, they gotta get in the phones. Uh, with the countries that actually run everything here. Yeah, that was, uh, listeners may or may not know, but I, that's probably an important background to this. In the 2015 standoff between Syriza and the the European, you know, Brussels, uh, basically, uh, the the European institutions, European Central Bank above all, you know, they, they had all this austerity forced on on them under prior governments, in 2010, basically, you know, you had a the Greek Greek state had borrowed a ton of money. And in fact, it like camouflaged how much it, it had borrowed. Um, and then when the recession hit, you know, you had a crisis of confidence. But who lent them the money? A lot of it was French and German banks. And so the first bailout, at least, was basically just laundering a bailout of the French and German banks. It went into Greece and went right back out again to 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 get that off of the bank's balance sheet. And then they imposed punishing austerity, you know, basically as sort of moral cover to blame Greece for the crisis rather than, you know, right. prior Greek governments Which and would not the banks. Help, 
not help the the overall debt of Greece at all, right? Made it worse. Made it worse and led to all kinds of suicide and death and emigration. And yeah, it was uh, so. Yeah, Syriza is elected in 2015, I believe, on a platform of ending the austerity. And uh, they had a, a standoff with this, the the uh, Troika and... Um, About a new bailout deal. Yeah, the terms. The, yeah basically renegotiating, like a, like a partial default, basically, of just saying, like, we're going to write some of this off so that we can, like, increase spending and uh, maybe cut taxes a little bit. The VAT in Greece is very high. Um and uh, the European Central Bank caused a bank run on purpose uh, in the, the the Greek banking system to to push, you know, sir, like basically bully Syriza into into sh- shutting up. And at the last minute, uh, uh, Alexei Tsipras, the prime minister, he blinked. He gave in. Varoufakis well, resigned. Wait, wait, very, very important thing that happened before that is that he, he tried to be smooth and he said, well, you know what? I'm going to put it to the people. And we're, we're going right. to have a referendum. We're going to have a referendum. And if the, if the people say that we shouldn't take this deal, then we won't take the deal. Right. And so there was a huge buildup and, and talk about massive turnout for this referendum. Uh, to, yes, was to take the deal. No, was to reject the deal from the Troika. Right. Yeah. And I think Cheap Russ thought that people would vote yes to take it. And then he would have cover. Right. Yep. Uh, but the people said no overwhelmingly. It was like sixty-eight yeah. percent, something like that. No, um, and and so that should have been a rejection, right? Yeah, but he didn't do it for whatever reason. Um, yeah, and Varoufakis resigned, and yeah, that's and then you know they just managed. There was a the- moment where Varoufakis was going to try to do this alternate thing, right? Where he was going to try to come up with kind of uh, you know some janky ass kind of like anarchist type currency method or whatever. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. He had this alternate payment system that he had set up, but he never went for it. You know, he maybe could have done earlier in his career rather than like waiting for these negotiations with the Europe, which the Europeans dragged out for months and months, of course, to get, let the, you know, basically let the pressure take hold. Um, and to be fair to him, he wasn't supported by by cheap roster. You know, like he was a kind of lone wolf there, trying to. He's not. People wanted. I think, as your prior uh, conversations indicate, I think he isn't a very good politician. He's too much of an intellectual. You know, he's not good at wheeling and dealing. Um, he tries to. He's just like talking about the issues and not trying to make. He's brilliant like, and he's principled. He's maybe a little arrogant narcissistic <laughs> and uh and we would love to have him on the podcast if he's listening but yeah. uh but no yeah he, he couldn't couldn't get it done on his own he has a great book by the way adults in the room um one, one of the uh, most compelling reads on all that stuff that went down he's a good writer uh, if again a little full of himself but like it's it's a compelling read and and it has one of those famous larry summers lines which he apparently says to lots of people Right. Uh, do you remember this? Where, where you, you can you can matter and influence things and be on the inside. Right. Uh, but then, you know, you, you have to not ever say anything bad about the, the elites and the people in power. Right. Uh, you can be one of the adults in the room. Yeah. Will, and be on the inside or you're on the outside and you're uh, persona non grata. And how did that work out for him, though? He's not in the inside <laughs> now. <laughs> 
But so I totally understand people being really demoralized. You vote for Syriza, you vote in their referendum to say no to austerity, and then they spend the next four years doing the same austerity shit as the last guys. It's like, what it doesn't matter. And this almost makes me, uh, look, I don't buy when leftists say, oh, anyone that runs as a Democrat, even if they call themselves a socialist, is ultimately going to be co-opted by corporations and it's going to be establishment uh, liberal in no time. You know, and they say that about Bernie or AOC or whomever. But if you look at Syriza, I don't know, man, like the, the only difference with Mitsotakis on um, building like the wall, if you will, and building like um, impediments to migrants coming in is that uh, uh, Chipras wanted the EU to fund it. <laughs> that was the difference. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and they, and they are literally a socialist party. So it's understandable. Uh, why you would get cynical um, when that's what goes down. So, yeah, that's unfortunately there has to be some mass politics, I think, and some real uh, alternatives because Vero Fakis has his own party, uh, but that just, you know, didn't even get a seat. Uh, and, and like, there's just um, a lot of work to be done on the left. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, and this, you know, I, I, the, the thing, uh, perhaps the difference like between like voting for, Democrats potentially to do stuff like that Greek just structurally is subject to like That's economic right. imperial domination from the Eurozone and the rest of the European Union. Your vote there for the Greek, the Greek government is like half its sovereignty is cored out. Like a lot of economic stuff is just run by outsiders. Yeah. Um, so electoral politics is never the only answer. It's especially not the answer in that situation. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you're, you know, this is one thing I wish Obama would have taken a little bit more seriously, that that it could be the task of uh, Americans and, and European sort of comrades to, like, organize in the, you know, imperial core of the European Union, France and Germany, to be like, no, look, this this is not working. We need we need to we need to change the way that we relate to the the rest of the countries, Italy and especially Greece and also Spain, you know, such that they have yes. more ability to like to, to grow and return to, to full employment and production. And that's the thing. OK, so usually um, your country, local politics, especially, but local state national is where you can make the most influence. Um, and and, you know, don't forget about people all across the world, but unless your country is doing something that relates to people across the world, your energy should be focused where it matters, where you can influence the politicians and, and the politics uh, where you are. However, in some, in some situations like in Greece, uh, other people in different places politically being comrades have the power to change what happens over in Greece, right? Uh, to your point. So I think we need to start thinking about this more not just globally, but like interconnectedly, you know, what, what uh, politics can be done uh, at the domestic level influencing international politics, what politics can be done with organizations that are, are international and, and where can pressure be applied? Because watch this transition. Uh, look at the example of uh, the rail workers getting screwed, right? Uh, this is, this is another thing. I, I, I yeah. think like, Pressure is the way that things get done. And uh, it's not something that happens immediately and it has to be sustained and it has to involve lots of different fronts of a war. But like, if we talk about some good news here at the end, maybe we can tie in this discussion to the way that politics is dynamic 
and can produce good things as long as we understand uh, where to apply pressure and, uh, you know, and how to do it across lots of different groups, whether it's media or union or, you know, political, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the news here is that um, after, like, basically the government forced the freight rail unions to not um, to, to back down and not strike, um, despite not getting their core demand of uh, a measly seven days of paid sick leave. Um, since that time, most of the rail workers have gotten their seven days. Um, usually they think it's an arrangement, like either four or five paid sick days. And then you can, um, you can take, you can transfer two to three, uh, personal days and make them into sick days. Uh, and this is basically because, you know, as soon as that, as soon as the government forced that agreement on them, the unions went right back to, you know, pressuring the employers on, you know, to, to, to give them what they wanted and, uh, negotiations were reopened and, uh, there was a lot of public pressure on the freight rail companies from journalists and from Bernie Sanders, who had a, a literal bipartisan uh, Senate group with seven Republicans in it, r- remarkably. And he wrote an open letter to all these companies saying, give them the sick days. Uh, he did a press conference with uh, Mike Braun from Indiana, Republican guy. Um, and uh, the Biden administration, the, the Brian Deese and uh, Marty Walsh, who was the secretary of labor at the time, they, they did some calls with these these folks. And then I think crucially, you know, the, the freight rail companies were worried because they had a massive public relations black eye because of the derailment in East Palestine. Um, that was a, just, you know, the huge chemical spill. And Norfolk Southern in particular, that's the company, right? They, they've gotten all their rail union workers now. There's 12 unions, which is kind of nuts in it's itself. It's and not awesome. Yeah, but yeah. But they've got all of them over the finish line there with Norfolk Southern. And apparently about 60% now have of all the rail freight rail union workers have the sick leave and expectation is they'll probably get to all of them in the next few months. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it, it's a big pain in the ass. It's, you know, the fragmented unions and uh, very weak labor laws. And then the president, you know, uh, cuts you out at the, at the negotiation table, but they still manage to get the goods. You just keep on, keep on pressing. And, uh, you know, it's great. We love to see it. You know, seven days is not very many, but it's more than zero. And yeah, and it shows what's, what's possible when you keep fighting. Right. And, and it shows that, you know, things that seem little do matter over time, uh, just because you don't have the votes or, or the, the president, uh, to do the right thing, uh, in Congress at the time, doesn't mean that somebody like Bernie Sanders, who has tremendous influence and popularity can't be powerful in applying pressure and that combined with coverage and bad PR, like all these things um, are effective. If, if you don't just think in a binary, like one off, well, are we going to get it now or not? Right. Like it has to be a continual um, mindset to inspire politicians, organizers, um, the media to always be aware of and pushing for what's right. Um, and it can pay off, you know, even in these dark times with, uh, you know, losing Congress to the Republicans and with a kind of centrist uh, who's willing to fuck over the rail workers uh, when he had the power not to. That doesn't mean it's the end of the story. 
So yeah. let's hope that. Yeah, and I, I you know, a lot of Democrats are saying, like, oh, Joe Biden did this. So that's not true at all. You know, he sold them out when it mattered. But I also think that, like, Obama never would have sent his uh, National Economic Council dude or Labor Secretary over to, to yell at the uh, rail executives. You know, he didn't give a crap. Um, I think Biden felt kind of a little shamefaced, you know, he's like, he yeah, just didn't want a rail strikes, worried about inflation, blah, blah, blah. It's like, sorry, you're just not getting it. But then afterwards, he's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll put our thumb on the scale a little bit. And so, you know, that's better I mean, that's than the thing. This is, as we've said so many times, you know, when Dr. King wrote about the white moderate in his letter from Birmingham jail, Biden's who he's talking about, because he says, you know, the fascists, the KKK, you can't talk to them. It doesn't, you know, there's there's no dealing with them. The white moderate won't do the right thing unless pressured, but it's possible to get them to do the, the right and just thing. Yeah. And that's the whole deal. That's the whole point. It's a big yep. difference. Well, I think that's a good spot to end on. A nice positive note after a fairly bleak episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, good to have you back on the show, buddy. Good to see you. Good to I'm be sure. back. Missed you. I'm sure the listeners missed you too. <laughs> Send me all the affirmation that uh, you can. I, I, I'll eat it up like ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope, Ryan, that uh, I'll see you in Greece before long. It'd be fun. Maybe we'll do a, a recording you know, episode from Greece. Could be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Could do. Um, yeah. I'll be making those plans soon. But thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode.